I think many of us bring to the idea of encountering beauty a sense that it's peripheral to our faith. It's a side issue. What is beauty anyway? It wasn't me having a pretty house or, you know, yeah, you hear a good symphony. Instead of beauty is the way that God communicates the fullness of his love to us, that this is where we actually taste the benevolence and generosity of our Creator. I'm Nathan Foster, and welcome to Life with God, a Renovare podcast a place for unhurried and thoughtful conversations about interactive life with God. We continue with our new series around practices that help in times of challenge, gifts that sustain. And today, we're exploring the gift of beauty. I'm reminded of just how helpful beauty can be when things fall apart. When God's silence is deafening, it's his voice and beauty that draws me back. There's something grand and wonderful, a blinding goodness hidden in plain sight, waiting to be discovered. My unanswered questions and unfinished conversations, they fade away in the presence of beauty. In the heaviness of silence and all-encompassing fear, beauty. When the road is not marked and pain is all around, beauty. I keep going back to beauty. I can't let it go. It pulls me away from the shadow of despair. It transcends. It heals. This fleeting echo of God's goodness all around draws us home back to ourselves and our loved and longed-for state. And today, I get to share with you a conversation I had with someone who's written an entire book on the subject. Her name's Sarah Clarkson. Her book is titled, This Beautiful Truth, How God's Goodness Breaks Into Our Darkness. And she's quite an author, written some seven books, and an absolutely delightful person to talk with. I spoke with Sarah from her home in Oxford, England. Hi, Sarah. Hello. Thank you for being here. I'm glad to be here. I'm curious to hear your story, however you'd like to define that. Oh, isn't that an ongoing question and challenge? I'll work backwards. So we're talking, I'm sitting in a, I think, I've wandered into an English novel, is what many people think, and I don't disagree. Um, I I live in an old English vicarage in Oxford. Um, My husband is an Anglican priest. And about a year ago, we, through many very unexpected routes, um, stumbled into uh, this job where he works at a little parish church. And um, we live here in the vicarage with a gigantic garden and a willow woman tree in the back, which is the delight mm-hmm. of my heart. Um, I'm a writer. I have three little children, almost four. Um, and I think I start with this because in many ways, many of the elements of my life right now were dreams I just never thought would actually happen. I grew up in a lovely Christian family. My parents were in ministry. But when I was 17, I was diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder, which I always think sounds quite tame in the sense of it's, um, you know, you think, well, isn't that just about being 
a bit funny about germs and stuff, which yes, it is. But um, it's also for me, it was and continues to be visceral, intrusive images of just disaster and violence and um, just the world and its perversity and its worst moments. And it's it's kind of I was actually, it took me 20 years before I could write about it. And I was even writing an article recently and realizing how much difficulty I still have in describing this living with, um, with a broken mind, as I, as I think I would describe it. And so that really knocked me kind of out of the water. It challenged everything I knew about faith. It challenged everything I knew about myself. And there's a real sense in which it took about 12 years for me to emerge from the tunnel kind of in which it put me at, at 18, 17, 18 years of age. So I, I, I was a late starter in many ways. My twenties were very much a, a wandering and I, many good things happened. I have a, you know, faithful parents who walked through it with me. Um, but there was just a lot of questioning and wondering. And then almost 10 years ago, um, kind of through, it's such a long story, but I ended up to do my first, my, my, my Dutch husband thinks this is hysterical. My, I was home educated. So my first step into a formal school was into Oxford. And within a year I had fallen in love with the study of theology. Never thought I'd study theology. Always thought I'd study literature. I struggled so much in my faith. And then here I was stumbling into this course where we were doing basic Christian doctrine. And I'd only come because I was turning 30 and I wanted to do something different. And I wanted to get out of the States. And suddenly I found myself falling in love with kind of the in-depth understanding of not just the tenets of my faith, but what it meant for them to be incarnated in the person of Christ. And, and it just, I fell in love with theology and decided to study it. And at the same time, fell in love with my husband and wanted to stay in England to stay around him. And, and here we are 10 years later. Um, that's a very, very rambling way to say but I think in the midst of that, um, one of the reasons I think I was so drawn to the study of theology is throughout those very dark years of, of coming to terms with my mental illness and realizing this is the context of the rest of my life. This is the condition in which the whole of my life will be lived um, and understanding and accepting that as just a condition of everything I would do. A lot of that, I just really struggled with a lot of my questions of faith revolved around God's presence within that. How could he allow it? Did he cause it? Does he, does he desire it? Is this some, you know, I think I really recoiled from the kind of assertions like, well, it's all part of a great plan. And I kind of wanted to say, well, doesn't sound like a great plan to me. And actually if God needs this to make his plan happen, <laughs> then explain to me how it's good to begin with. Um, but <laughs> I definitely... This is a great plan at my cost. <laughs> well, <laughs> my suffering. <laughs> I just don't think it, it's a great argument, to be honest. But um, No, it's not. I think it made me then look for um, not an explanation, but a way of living in the tension of great suffering. But also the thing that kept me in the conversation with Almighty God was beauty and was these encounters with nature and music and very much for me story um, where there was kind of this opening into a larger understanding of the forces of goodness and evil at play. And it, it didn't explain it, 
and it didn't give me, you know, a five point outline of why this had happened and what I could make of it, but it invited me into this place of, of good tension of, of learning to trust the goodness that was mediated to me by beauty. And I think that part of the reason I, I fell in love with theology was because it allowed me to wrestle even more deeply with those questions and to really yeah, examine the role of beauty, I think, in our belief, in our capacity, not just our belief, like it's as an argument, but our belief in the sense of our capacity to believe in something beyond the horizons of our pain and loss and failure and disappointment. Yeah. And so I think on that level, like there's different stories of my life, but on that level, that is very much the interior story of my life is this constant ongoing search and conversation that takes place now within the conditions of home and family and all these, all these beauties in which I, I, I taste so much of, of God's goodness. Um, yeah. So that's a bit of a rambling way of telling the story, but there you go. No, you, you, you summed up a lot of years in a short <laughs> time. Um, what is the role of beauty in suffering, challenges, hmm. darkness? My short answer would be, I think beauty is a tangible encounter with the goodness of God. When it says in the Psalms, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. I think we often read that in an abstract way. And I think it's meant to be read in a, a literal way, taste and see. And, you know, I think one of the the aspects of studying doctrine that I loved the most was being immersed in the study of the incarnation, what it means for God to take on flesh. And the way the way that this changes the whole way we understand God's interaction with our suffering, because he comes into our broken world and he heals it from the inside. He's not zapping it from the outside. He's not standing apart from it. Um, he's coming to heal what he made that was good and that was beautiful. And so I think I really see beauty as it is our encounter. Yeah, it is an, a, a physical, tang often physical, tangible encounter with the goodness of God. And you, you can push me on that, say more, but that's... Oh, I love that. A tangible encounter with the goodness of God. I like that quite a bit. <laughs> Where are you finding beauty hmm. these days? These days, um, I feel like it's always all around, and part of it is just having eyes to see it. Uh, <laughs> these days, very much in the place that we live, it is a total gift, and a uh, it floors me to live here. Um, we kind of live on the outskirts of Oxford, but we're surrounded by big trees, so I can look out the windows and see... I have a cherry tree out one window and an alder tree at the other and then a big old willow. And I, I've always been an interior dryad, so this makes me very happy. Um, <laughs> interior. <laughs> you don't like being outside, but you enjoy the... the <laughs> <laughs> no, no, on the inside. You just can't see it on the outside. I love being outside. Oh, you just can't it, see it. my dryad nature. Got it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that, I think in, on a very, so I have three children under six and another on the way. So there's not a lot of space at the moment, but um, I think something I have come to believe really strongly in my study of beauty is either every small thing matters or it doesn't. Either everything matters and is precious 
And either the tiny flower on the windowsill actually means something or doesn't. And you kind of live in one universe or the other. Even if you don't consciously make the choice, there's always a, either you're taking every small thing you encounter, every small beauty as evidence of, of this, this kind of growing body of evidence for the ultimate kindness of the one who made the world, or it's just kind of passing out of your knowledge as something that doesn't mean. And so I think there is an aspect of having young children that you're so immersed and mired in the tiny and the small. And yet it is also an invitation to attend again to the tininess of the world and to find that there is intricacy and beauty woven throughout all things and that actually the flowers on the table and I am bound and determined that my children learn to enjoy the having of tea parties and tea times, not because we like tea so much, which we do, but um, it's the ritual of it and that there's a cadence to our days and that things like the turning of the first leaf ought to be celebrated. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the finding of snails ought to be met with exultation. <laughs> um, it's, it's in some ways it can be very trite, but I think kind of a, an overused, you know, thing to say, oh, children are so full of wonder and yet they are. And it's, there's an essential amazement that they bear into the world that I think as a parent, you're invited to, you're really invited to share. And so that is a, a major source of, of my finding the beauty, but that I think just, um, reading for me, I'm, I'm a reader. I read a little bit of poetry every day and I always have a good novel going. And I find that those are very nourishing places to restore an exhausted imagination. Mm, that's a good phrase. All right. So I'm working on a, a bit of a theory like you're pinning okay. on. Okay. Um, okay. the idea is that when, when we face challenges, whether they're mm. severely debilitating or not, um, but things that um, where we find we're at our end, we find a forced pause, and then the opportunity presents itself to notice beauty and to mm. lean into it. We don't have to, um, but uh, and find an encounter, a way to right. The flowers now new. Right, there's something. Mm. And more beyond yeah. me, and do you, how does that sit with you? I'm still working on it. I, I don't quite know. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> I think that makes a lot of sense. I think that suffering. Okay, so you you feel free to push back on me. I'm really. I have a hard time with anything that says we have to have suffering in order for something to happen. Mm -hmm. Because I think if if suffering is necessary to the economy of God's goodness, then on what basis do we call it good? And that's a big wrestle for me. Is if you know if if you need to destroy me in order to convince me that something you know, to bring me to this place of revelation, then how do I trust your goodness? Mm -hmm. So I'll start with saying that. But no, I very much think I think that when we suffer and when we're brought into these places of total total kind of demolition of the self in a sense, um, which is very much what the kind of, I guess my late teens, early twenties were for me. Um, I think that in that space, you come to a brutal honesty. Um, I love, I love how, um, it's really Shakespeare who used the phrase, but then Beekner took it on speak what we feel, not what we ought to say. 
It's from mm-hmm. King Lear. And um, I think we're brought to this place where I think what comes first is the grief. And, but I think grief is very holy because it witnesses to the fact that we were not meant for this. This was mm. not what was intended. And in that understanding that I'm grieving because this was not what was the intent of my creator, there's an invitation to say what was the intent and what is his intent. And at that point, I think we are invited then into that healing place of encountering his beauty as personal, as redemptive, and as active in the midst of our broken world, and also the larger shatteredness of the cosmos and the world. So yes, I think I agree with what you're saying. <laughs> How do we lean into it? I mean, it's it's quite possible to encounter all sorts of beautiful visual, audio, just happenings and, and miss it. But it's also possible to savor the snail <laughs> the turn of the leaf, right? It's a difference. Yeah. One thing is definitely quiet. I think we are, and not just outer quiet, but mental quiet. I um, I guess this is a bit of a soapbox issue for me right now. I'm, I'm writing Please. a manuscript on it as we speak. But I've been thinking about it for three years because I've struggle so much with it. Um, I think our screens, our many, many, many screens, give us the capacity to never have to face our grief. There's always something that can be Googled, a question that can be answered, a symptom that can be found. Um, And I think I started to notice, it was around the time of the first six months of the pandemic, and I was just, I was, I had just had a baby and I was, which is a, always a trigger for mental illness for me. So I, I know that now, didn't know it as well then. Um, but I was glued to my phone and I was just doom scrolling. And also we were watching borders close and our families canceling flights. And I just became profoundly aware that I was incapable of sitting for a moment without looking at a screen. And part of that was the intensity of the season. You know, when the world seems to be falling apart, it's hard not to be glued to a screen. But the more I examined myself, the more I realized that that impulse to, in times of profound loneliness or discomfort or panic, to turn to a screen to Google something, to find a question, to connect with someone, to see what someone has said, had made it, and and I have such sympathy for it, and I'm not very good at not doing it, so don't hear me as being very good at this, but um, had made it so that I had an interior furor and my mind at all times that made it very difficult to listen for the voice of God, to listen, to find comfort, and also to attend. I began to have this sense that my interior uproar was making it hard for me to just focus in a moment of silence. And so I think, I do think an aspect of our engagement with the beautiful is it's not yeah, just, you know, I think quiet is something we think of as for the introverted or the very disciplined or the, but I think quiet is what, it's the context of our homecoming. It's the context of our arrival back into the presence of the voice that spoke us into being. I mean, if we were spoken into being by a living word, then, you know, this is the argument of my book in many ways is that we are listening people. And quiet is 
not so much this thing we grit out as this invitation we respond to. And mm. it's not a place that we, we walk then into the displeasure of God as our homecoming into his love for us. And one of the gifts of quiet then is the capacity to attend. It's the capacity to, to have kind of healed inward eyes, um, to have healed insight in a sense, you know. Um, so I do think quiet is part of that. Another aspect is, uh, I would say is, and this, this is something I spent a lot of years thinking about is I think we have to examine what we actually believe about beauty. Hmm. Um, I think many of us bring to the idea of encountering beauty a sense that it's peripheral to, to our faith. It's a side issue. It's something you can do, you know, it's what is beauty anyway? It's, was it me having a pretty house or, you know, yeah, you hear a good symphony instead of beauty is the way that God communicates the fullness of his love to us that this is um that this is where we actually taste the benevolence and generosity of our creator and i think that's where i have loved some of my study that i had the chance to study beauty as an aspect of theology because you have these great theologians saying actually um i love hans urs von balthasar he was this great catholic theologian um and he says we must begin with beauty basically says if you can't believe in beauty then her twin sisters truth and goodness are going to abandon you and you won't even be able to pray <laughs> and um <laughs> i think there's so much truth in that um because i think that we're such a pragmatic culture we're shaped by kind of materialism what you see is what you get so we've kind of lost the idea that beauty means that beauty communicates and i think even often in the christian world um we see engagement with the beautiful as yeah, it's great, but you know, go study some doctrine, go learn your apologetics. Um, that's what's important. And actually, I think we aren't meant to be abstracted. We're embodied people. We are, we are made to taste and see and be immersed in the fullness. And we, what we've lost is not an amount of knowledge that we need to gain back. It's our understanding of the sacredness of the whole of the world. And I, you know, I've loved studying the way that earlier Christians have seen the world as a sacrament of the goodness of God and the way that they encountered the wholeness of creation um, and every aspect of their lives. So I think in that sense, actually examining what you believe about beauty is really important. And I, even when I, I wrote this book on beauty and, and suffering, and I would get a lot of questions sent to me like, well, this just seems very American. And this, you know, how is this work in a war zone? And everything in me just wants to say, well, it's American if, if beauty is about having a perfect house. But beauty is healing those who have been hurt in a war zone. It's creating shelters where children can have refuge. It's rebuilding what has been destroyed. Beauty defies disorder. It is a defiance of destruction because it is its opposite. Can you say that one more time? Yeah, beauty is a defiance of the forces of evil and disorder and destruction because it is its opposite. Where evil tears down, beauty creates where there's absence, beauty fills. Yeah. Almost an act of rebellion to notice or a counter Very much so. It's a defiance. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I don't think we realize how much of a defiance. follow up on that 
war zone or in the midst of kind of chaotic life, um, where is beauty to be found in the hustle and bustle and such? Hmm. Is it just for privileged people with time for silence? No. Well, well, first, let me challenge the idea that only the privileged have time for silence. Each of us has time. Even we may not have hours of it, but we, I think one of the, the great inheritances of being made in the image of God is the capacity to attend to his spirit moving within us. And I think he is ceaselessly inviting every person into that place doesn't mean you have great outward quiet, but it's the inward quiet. It's the place of, of being known as beloved and of, of then having yeah, the capacity to stand in that place. I think, I actually do think there's something quite important in, and I, and I say this, not, yeah, I don't, I don't want, it's all, it's always hard to say with nuance, but there is something important in resisting the busyness of our modern world. And I'm not saying that doesn't mean you have to work hard and have many children. I mean, we, my husband and I are pretty much exhausted all the time. And not many people who are more exhausted than we are. Um, but I think that we live in a world that pushes towards, that doesn't embrace limit, that is always pushing towards more, towards more people, more likes, more posts, more, you know, anything bigger and better. And I think that part of living in this place where we are aware of God's presence and goodness also means living in an acceptance of our frailty and our need. Um, if you feel all powerful and not in need of healing, then I think it becomes much more difficult to witness God's tenderness in the world. But in the midst of the hustle and bustle, I think it's always the choice. It's all these tiny choices we make all the time, just constant tiny choices of, of listening well to someone of, you know, I think a very small thing I'm trying to do, and I'm not always good at it, but is, is having a sort of ritual to begin the day that and does not involve looking at my phone, that involves attending on some level. It's why I read poetry, because usually the day begins in a rush and the easiest thing to do to just enter it is to just check the phone and see what's happened. And I think I increasingly feel that if I can even read one poem and look out the window, it becomes a way of tethering my attention to something greater than myself, greater than all the, whatever latest headline is screaming across, because there always is one, there's always a crisis somewhere. <laughs> um, and in, in the age of 24 hour news, we are always aware of it. Um, but I don't want to be rooted in that. I don't want the whole experience of my day to be framed by that instant immersion in the uproar of the world. I want myself to be rooted in the larger horizons of a goodness that extends beyond it, of the seasons in their march and their dance and words that are always witnessing in some sense to to the word made flesh. I think that's, you know, just a little bit of poetry, a few minutes of staring out the window, maybe one minute, you know, let's be honest. <laughs> but even that, there are these tiny acts. I, I think the older I get, the more I think 
so much of our faithfulness and our experience of who God is, is bound up in our response to the tiny. It's mm. the, the faithfulness and little acts and little attentions and little moments that make up the kind of life, the kind of faith, the kind of vision that, that, is, that is an engagement with, with the ultimate goodness of God. Sarah, thank you for today. This is very oh, helpful. The pleasure. And that was Sarah Clarkson. Her newest book is titled This Beautiful Truth, How God's Goodness Breaks Into Our Darkness. You can find out more about Sarah and her other books at sarahclarkson.com. I'm Nathan Foster, and you've been listening to Life with God, a Renovare podcast. Grateful to everyone who helped make this work possible. You can support Renovare in this podcast with a tax-deductible gift at renovare.org donate. Renovare is a Christian ecumenical renewal effort offering resources and experiences to help people become more like Jesus. You can find a collection of thoughtfully curated articles, podcast webinars, online classes, as well as information on events and our institute on our website at renovare.org. This podcast is produced by Brian Morricon, who also wrote the opening song titled Be Kind. And until next time, be well, friends. Be well.